Like most people, growing up, music's always going on in the house, and I had a uh, heavily influenced by country music um, in those early days. Jim Reeves, Hank Snow, Don Gibson were really, really big back then. I love you because you understand Every single thing I try to do You're always there to lend The old LPs and the vinyl records, you know. But also a little bit of Elvis in there. So that was sort of like listening to music. And then I'm thinking, you know, one day I'd like to play music, you know. But I never really thought about it. But I really loved music. And, and I gather being an only child too, you have a lot of time in solitude, you know. I'd be in a room by myself. So I used to go places in my mind, you know, that, that allows you to go because it's only in your mind. You shouldn't be afraid of going to places in your mind that you would never think that you could possibly go to, but you go there anyway. I remember when I was about 12 or 13 and we moved from Park Crescent down to Telegraph uh, Terrace, just um, lived next door to the Coles family. We moved there. So my cousin had a guitar. I don't think he was a very guitar player at all, but he used to carry a guitar around to sort of, um, you know, I think we were the girls more than anything, I would imagine. David Odegaard was his name. Great man. Very, very good man. Great mechanic too. He left a guitar at the house and then I picked it up and started just doodling with it and my father knew a few chords. He said, oh, yeah, I'll show you a couple of chords. So he me the G, the C, the D, you know. And, and of course, when you're learning how to play guitar, you know, your, your fingers like just hurt, you know, really badly. And also a cousin brother of mine, Joseph Forrester, He's a lot older than me, but he's played some Slim Dusty songs. So he taught me a few chords and then he played this and a couple of the runbacks and stuff like that. And I just used to sit in my room then and just play, like just play nonstop. Just sit down and the fingers used to be aching, but, you know, nothing for me to spend three or four hours just playing guitar and just playing, hitting the E string, you know. <laughs> and just learning how to play Credence, because Credence just started to come on the scene then, you know, like, and, and you're playing Proud Me. Doom, 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 you know. But, yeah, I, I just spend hours and hours just sitting in my room learning how to play guitar. I've never taken a guitar lesson in my life. I've only learned by ear. And then also going to see different parties. Lots of parties were happening around the Gap area then. So you'd go from party to party and you sit on the outer circle because there'd be an inner circle, with the older people, they're sitting there and they're playing guitars, so you listen, you know, and and then all of us around the outside territory, Peter Stewart, Richard Mack, myself, and and uh, David Kenny would sit on the outside and be listening. We'd go and watch these different bands playing, school bands, you know, there were school bands. We had that American influence and and the exposure. I remember walking all the way from the Gap, we used to walk up to the Totem Theatre and watch Ian Moss playing, and he was only playing 12-string guitar then. He would only been 16 or something like that, you know. And then there was an American band that played, you know, and I remember going watching them at the Alice Springs swimming pool back in the day as to play there, and the whole period of time in that 70s was very, very inspiring, um, and, you know, you aspire to you know, play music like you're watching these guys up on stage, you go, wow, that's pretty cool, you know, that's that looks good. I'll, you know, one day I would like to do that, you know. So it was amazing, amazing period of time. I remember playing a lot with Richard Hayes and also um, Richard Mack used to play the drums and uh, we sort of started to really meddle in sort of playing music and, and playing covers and stuff like that and Peter Stewart 
um, David Kenny, and that was sort of um, planted the seed for me, you know, and I kept going. I didn't stop there. The other guys did other things and never really followed that, that musical journey. I mean, they still doodle, they still play, but in, not to the point of, you know, releasing. Jerry Lawton, who's a year, a couple of years younger than me, Stanley Sator, and Danny Plain, who's, you know, three or four years younger than me. But And I remember um, going into the old basketball courts in Traeger Avenue and Danny Plain had the vinyl of Cosmos Factory. Credence was starting to really hit the waves then, and that Cosmos Factory just blew my mind, and Danny was playing it to me. Hey, listen to this, brother, you know, put it on and listen to all the songs on Cosmos Factory. I said, wow, wow, is that good. And that's my first contact with Danny, really. And then um, later on, then Danny started writing his own songs, and we all came together, myself, uh, Jerry, Danny and Stanley. We just decided to um, to look at, um, you know, having a go at playing music and I remember um, Stanley was living at Port Elliot at that time and me, Jerry and, and Danny were here. We sent him a, a telegram and, and a, a bus ticket on a Bulls transport bus to come up and, and, and record with us at Karma and uh, Stanley was quite impressed with that so um, so he came up and uh, we recorded Better Late Than Never. 1988, there was myself on guitar, uh, Jerry Lawton on guitar, Stanley and Danny. So there was three songwriters in the band. There was myself, Gerald, and um, and Danny. We did that first release of Better Late Than Never. But then Stanley, who was very accomplished, well, wasn't accomplished then, but he he had a, he he knew what he wanted in terms of music, and he knew um, the real importance of a rhythm section. And I remember him coming to me and saying, "Listen, well, I can't play with Danny." He said, I can't, he just doesn't keep the beat. He's just all over the shop, you know. Um, he goes or I go, one of the two, you know. I can't, I can't continue on. He said, we're not going to go anywhere. And um, they were really strong words, you know. And um, then I remember, you know, because Danny started to just get too much involved with alcohol and things like that and it started to impair him and he, and he sort of... Um, you turn up to rehearsals, you know, slightly inebriated, and his playing wasn't very good. You know, he was good, you know, but, you know, when you play, you've got to play good for a long period of time, not just for one song. But very, very talented, Danny, and very smart. Anyway, so Jerry Lawton said to me, well, you're going to have to go and tell him that um, we're going to have to move him off the drums, you know, and um, I said, oh, yeah, okay. So we had the discussion with Danny. He said, why don't you just up front and sing. But then that put Danny in a really awkward position because I gather when you play drums, you're behind the drum kit. It's like a guitar player. You understand how he won the guitar. So, and I don't think that was really fair on Danny. And so he did that for a while. And then we had uh, Nick Gugersberg join the band. He was a young white boy who was 10, 12 years younger than most of us. And um, he came from 
uh, Nana Wadding in Victoria and rocked up and, you know, said, I can play the drums, you know. So we, we rehearsed him and, and he passed the rehearsal. He's a fantastic drummer, Nick. And then, so we played as a five-piece. I remember doing Sing Loud, Play Strong in Darwin in 1989. Danny up front and we were just starting to really gel, you know. And then we got to the point where Danny just started to get a bit, bit more and more off the rails in terms of his alcohol abuse. I remember doing a gig at Todd Tavern and, you know, Danny fell through the drum kit, you know, like, and it was just, we had to stop the gig because he just couldn't go forward. And then, then there was the ultimate then. It was sort of like, i to ask him to leave the band. So that was always really, really difficult. And I don't think even to this day, people have forgiven me for that, you know. But that's the way it goes. I mean, we're out there to perform and everybody's got to put the hard yards in and be disciplined. And um, if you want to go anywhere, you know, um, you can play in the backyard and stuff like that. But we, we had aspirations of playing bigger events and bigger stadiums and, and you know, recording. Because we were going to go and record Civilised World. So it was just me, Nick and Jerry and Stan. And then uh, Rachel Perkins hit town and um, she was working here at Karma, you know, doing film studies. And she was really keen to sing. And I, I heard her sing with Mally Stewart at that time. And they were doing a couple of duos and singing with other bands. And actually she started, they started singing with uh, Eddie Kitching and and Jason Ramp and um, Danny started up another band and they had some really good songs. I think, wow, this is good, you know, because it's just good to have all these different bands happening around town. And I remember I spoke to the guy, I said, look, we really need to ask Rachel to join us, you know, because um, it'd be good, you know, like I think um, having a female singer, because Fleetwood Mac, you know, I was thinking, oh, I like that, I like that Fleetwood Mac sort of sound, you know, with Stevie Nicks and Rachel, she's a fantastic singer. Anyway, so uh, I went up and asked her, I said, Come and come and join us, but she was already with another band. Um, so, <laughs> so once again, I'm not forgiven for that. So, I enticed her over, and she came and 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 sang with us, and uh, she stayed with us for a couple of years. And we did Civilized World, and you know, she did some fantastic work with us. Civilized World. Phil Blackburn played sax on that on that album, and he was just a fantastic saxophone player. And he played some really soulful sax and um, amazing. And so that was good to have all different musos that sort of collaborated with us on that particular album. When you play in a band, or you, um, it's very rare to hold a band together for a long period of time, you know, and um, 
you see bands come and go, you know, and um, and memberships um, come and go. And at that time when we wrote Pedal Avenue, um, Jerry was then um, about to leave the band. Um, and it was sort of amicable um, because he just couldn't do it anymore. It just, we just weren't making enough money for him to support his family and, and we were touring constantly and it's just a grind. It's a grind. We were in Alice Springs, Bama. We were all over the place. We were Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, out to every Aboriginal remote community in, in Northern Territory. We played everyone, everywhere. Um, so it was really difficult for him. And um, so we did that EP. At Peddler Avenue, you know, Jerry wrote some songs on there. He got a fantastic uh, instrumental on there also. And it was sort of like testament to Jerry, really. Um, on that whole um, EP, you know, he really shone through. You know, he's my relation too. He's my cousin brother, you know. So we all grew up together and it was really difficult. And um, and so Jerry left the band. So uh, Rachel left the band a couple of years before that. Um, then Jerry left the band. Then we were just back to a three-piece, you know. So that was interesting. You know? Yeah, that was us going forward as a three-piece and, and going out. And we started really started to get momentum there. We were an independent band and we were trying to forge our own way and our style of music was a little bit different, like it wasn't radio friendly as such per se. So um, we were never going to get picked up by a label and at that time Gothi Indie started to hit the scene then and they really shaped that whole genre around what Aboriginal music should be and absolutely magnificent and fantastic. I remember going and watching them live and thinking, wow, how good is this, you know? But it wasn't us, we were a rock band. We just wanted to play rock, because, you know, Stanley was, you know, Uriah Heap, Deep, Deep Purple, Nick had, you know, all different types of influence. I had lots of different influence, but it's all mostly around rock. So that was really um, an interesting period of time. But we were good enough to actually start making um, inroads, because at the end of the day, if the music's good enough, it's going to carry through. And when you play it live, and you play it well live, people can't ignore it because it's good, you know, and it comes out good out front. So at the end of Pedal Avenue, there was a song in there called Time Will Tell that had high rotation on Triple J on the East Coast. And it'd be getting played every, like, every hour it'd be being played, you know, like, so that then allowed us to get on Big Day Out tours and get some really good support acts. And we started really, it started to really look good for us in terms of going forward. What we needed to do then was go back in the studio and record a fourth project because up to that we had Better Late Than Never, we had um, Civilised World, then we had Pedal Avenue. So the next one was do another album. And we had songs, because we were playing on the road live, we'd be playing the songs live. We never recorded them. So the next stage was then to go in the recording studio and and record them. But we never got there. The band, it just stopped in 1997, ran out of fuel, which is um, very interesting because I'd like to think that if we stayed together for another 18 months, things would have really been good for us. But we never know.